Hey, thank you for tuning in to the Relove Podcast. This is Pastor Rico. Our hope is that today's message adds life and power to your journey as you grow. Thanks for joining us. Happy Father's Day. It's an honor to celebrate today, to celebrate you fathers of who you are. Many of the fathers may feel as if you're not important to your families, but you are important to your family. Although the mothers, we do so much, but in studying this message, I've become to learn that I don't do everything in the house. (laughs) I don't do everything. Um, I understand, too, that while people may celebrate today, some people also find it difficult to celebrate. Not everyone was uh, raised with a physical father. Not everyone was raised with a perfect father or a present father. But thank God we have a father to the fatherless. Amen. Psalms 68 verse 5 reminds us that he is a father to the fatherless. This is who he is. A father to the fatherless. I'm not going to deliver a sermon on how to be the best father because there isn't one. I'm not going to deliver a message on how there is the perfect father in the Bible that just did everything that a father should do because it doesn't exist. Um, But I am going to say that this sermon was inspired by the life of my own father. He was not, he never shared his story. And nor did I truly know his story. But this has made me really, really interview a lot of people to know his story. It's crazy, though. I grew up with a father that never talked about his family, his mom, his dad, his siblings too much. It was just something you just don't mention. But he spent a lot of time just being silent. If you were in my household, you can be in the living room. And he would sit there and talk to himself. Just talk to himself. We're like, who is he talking to? We'd be driving in the car as a family, and he would be talking to himself. You know, moments like that, as I'm older now, he's been resting in the Lord for 26 years now. But as an adult, I can see now what he was wrestling with, the things that he was perhaps even just keeping under the covers. Um, My father wasn't able to share his story, so I'm allowed to tell his story for the very first time. Um, There's a lot of layers of his childhood, and it, it may not be good, but it helped me understand where he was in those moments. And as I unfold his story, I just want to go back and just, I wish I could tell him how proud I was of him, because I don't think he ever heard that from his parents. I wish I could tell him, Dad, you did the best you could. You did that. Yes, you did that. And so um, I know that a daughter, we may take our mother's presence for granted, but never our dad's. Never. I think it was in the presence of my father. His approval meant more than my mom. 
Let's just say that. I could say things to my mom, but just getting the yes from my dad just meant so much more. His encouragement meant more. His words meant more. His advice meant more. Just a twinkle in his eye when he saw me meant more than if my mom said, oh, you're so beautiful. The affirmation from my dad just meant more to me. There was something about me that I just wanted to please him all the time. And it's not that he didn't say he loved me, he was proud of me, but there was just something about being in the presence of my father that made me work harder. See, my mom could tell me the same things of how to put together a desk. And I'd be like, eh. But when my dad told me, I was like, well, dad said, if you do it like this, that it'd be better. There was something about being in his presence that just made me work a little bit harder when he would teach me things. Many fathers assume they have little influence over their children, but you don't. I could remember moments where my husband had to go to... He was deployed, and uh, there was a season in which he wasn't here for his son's football games, and I'm the mother that gets everything in the car, packs the lunch, the cooler, I'm cheering really loud, I have the posters, and after the game, I'm like, good job, son. Well, he can only handle that for so long. After a while, he's like, I need to talk to dad, because his dad was the kind of man, he would just sit silent and just listen. And my son knew exactly what needed to be discussed, and not everything is roses. He needed to also hear what he didn't do. And fathers would just give it to you. And the crazy thing is that the kids appreciate that. I don't know about you, but fathers just deliver it different. Mothers, my husband could say things. I'm like, ooh, that was a little bit too harsh, honey. Don't do that. And he's just like, no. They need to hear it. There was a time in, in my daughter's life, she's the oldest, and she was going through nursing school, and she was just having a meltdown, a breakdown. She couldn't handle the stress of school and was she working then maybe not school she was in nursing school it was a lot for her and she's telling her dad I can't handle the stress and I'm just like oh baby you got this I'm cheering her on and her, her dad says stress is part of life suck it up <laughs> he just gives it to her and I'm just like well, you don't have to say it like that but no she appreciated that she needed that message if they, my kids needed a pep talk, he was the guy. If they needed prayer or food, I was the woman. There's something about being in the presence of your father that just makes you feel validated. I had to admit that I underestimated the power of fathers until I had to prepare this sermon. So there were a lot of things that I researched online that challenges that fathers just challenge they challenges fathers and uh they have the top 10 that were listed online and the challenges fathers face is one unemployment two lack of money to provide for their children three the inability to pay child support because not everybody's married four a strained marriage Five, always being in high demand. Six, the juggle of work and family. Seven, the responsibility to be the rock of the family. So not only do you have to give your wife attention and your kids attention, you have to be the rock of the family. Eight, breadwinner of the family. Nine, 
The fear of being homeless. And number 10, being the perfect role model. Now, all of that, you kind of think, you're like, man, that's a heavy weight. That is a heavy weight for fathers to carry. That's a lot of pressure. And recent studies have shown also that fathers experience postpartum depression too. Crazy. I'm over here like, they didn't care, no baby. What's wrong with them? They can get up in the middle of the night. I'm the one that had the baby. Becoming a father increases your risk of anxiety and depression by 68%. Wow. And I was over here like, wake up. (laughs) Feed the baby. 68%. The more time, this is their explanation. I'm I'm sure doctor can, can relate to this. The more time men spends with the baby, their testosterone level drops, which alters the brain chemistry, lowering serotonin levels and increasing the risk of clinical depression. To me, I'm like, that's baloney. But it makes sense. It's not just moms who suffer through postpartum depressions. Fathers have to be screened too before they leave the hospital. There's a lot of things men don't talk about because they always have to walk around with the S in on chest and, you know, the biceps. They're always having to flex their biceps. And if dad can't do it, I'm not going to ask nobody else, right? Men just don't talk about their struggles because they feel as if they have to uphold this kind of standard in front of their wife and their children, For those of you who don't know, my name is Tui Paula. I'm named after the woman who raised my mom, not raised my dad, not his mom. I'm named after the woman who raised my father. He was born from parents who were not married, at least not to each other. Raised by his biological mother for five to seven years. And then handed off to his father. I'm not sure about the dynamics leading up to her giving him up, but she had other children. And because he was from a different father, she chose to leave him behind. Abandonment issues. Neglect. I never knew the story of my father. I was just informed of this. I don't want to place too much judgment over my grandparents because I didn't know the full scenario of what happened. But I can only imagine what a five, seven-year-old child must feel as he sees his siblings leave with his mom and he's left here in the village to be raised by his father and everyone else. See, when I say village, I typically mean village, like in the islands, in a village where he was raised by all of them. He was raised in a season of poverty. He did talk about he never owned a pair of shoes, not even a shirt to wear to school. He he never wore shoes. He never owned a pair of shoes. He always had to walk. And then I'm like, "Uh, so what? No, he really did not have anything. So imagine him being a sibling of 14. He didn't have any real full-blooded brothers and sisters, but being torn by both families, not knowing who his family really is. Because in reality, as he was growing up, he was also neglected by his siblings. I didn't know any of that. 
But it came through as he fathered us as children. He spent a lot of time being silent. One thing about my father, he was a great, great provider, always making sure that we had things, but he was rarely present, too busy providing. He had a painful childhood. I'll share more of his story later. It kind of ties in with the word. First Samuel 16, I'm going to read verse 1, then jump to 6 through 11. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I've rejected him as king of Israel. Now fill the flask, go to Bethlehem, find a man named Jesse who lives there. For I have selected one of his sons to be king. Samuel took the flask. He went down there. Verse 6 says, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the man the Lord has chosen. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge a man by his face or height, for this is not the one. God said, I don't make decisions the way you do. Men judge by the outward appearance, but I look at a man's thoughts and intentions. Then Jesse told his son, Adinadab, Abinadab, to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But the Lord said, this is not the man either. Next, Jesse said, Shama, walk in front of the Lord. And Samuel said, no, this is not the one. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen any of them. Now, I want you to set the scenario. There's seven sons who walk in front of Samuel. Not one of them is selected, and they're still sitting there like, well, who could it be? The Bible goes on. Are these all the sons you have? Well, there is the youngest, Jesse said, but he's out in the field watching sheep. Samuel says, send for him at once, for we will not sit down and eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was a fine looking boy. The Bible says he was dark and handsome, dark, dark. handsome. That's some of the list that you, you ladies have. Dark, handsome, with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one anoint him. Now, I want you to understand, many of us, <clears throat> seven sons, nicely groomed. I'm sure they were showered and ready, and they stood in front of Samuel. Samuel's like, oh, no, these aren't the one. David comes out from the field. He probably smelled. He was ruddy. He was like, probably the runt of the litter. He stands in front of Samuel, and God was like, that's the one. Anoint him. He's going to be king. Many of us men had walked the same pastures. Many of us men have been feeling as if the pastures of exclusion or even the pastures of rejection, the pastures of being wounded, wanting to be part of the team, well, but you just don't fit the genetic makeup of it all. Not good enough. The coach always picks the best looking one instead of the hardest working one. The teacher picks the pet student which, instead of the one that is prepared. The parent shows off the golden child instead of the one who is ready. Oh, but God, he doesn't see what we see. He looks at the hot heart. When God examines the heart and he sees a good one, he snatches it up. 
Praise the Lord, he doesn't measure our waist size, our wallet size, or any size. He looks at the heart, and when he saw David, man, something about David to say, this is the one, anoint him. The title of today's sermon is, The Wounded Son Who Became Great. Let us pray. Father God, I just thank you for the word. I thank you for the fathers who are present here today. I thank you that um, all of the men in this congregation, I thank you for the story of David and the flaws of David that has brought us to this word, Lord. I thank you for those who are tuning in online. Lord, give us a word. We need a word. We thank you. We love you. Amen. Surely we can all feel sorry for David and think his father was horrible, right? He didn't do his job. But let's look at the lineage of David. He came from good roots. Do you know who David's great-grandfather was? Boaz. Boaz. Every woman wanted to marry Boaz. Boaz. Boaz was his great-grandfather and Ruth was his great-grandmother. Obed was their son, then came Jesse, then came David. Jesse was a farmer. The Bible says he was a sheep breeder. He was well off. He had money. It also makes me think that just because people are well off, it doesn't mean they don't have issues. We all want to be like, man, if only I had a house like that. If only I had a car like that. Well, guess what? They're probably saying, if only I had peace like you. David, in the Bible, known as the famous king, a man after God's own heart, David the worshiper, David the repenter, David the military leader, David the poet. Well, guess what? He was also David the failed husband, David the absent father, David the adulterer, David the liar, David the murderer. Before all of that, he was David the wounded son. Let's look into the word wound. Wound comes from the Greek word clingy, which means trauma. Yeah, you guys are probably saying, yeah, it's not, not a big deal, right? David was just tending sheep, not a big deal. I want you to feel as if you were excluded, as if your dad came in and said, David, go tend sheep. I'm going to take these seven sons of mine, and they're just going to go walk in front of the prophet Samuel and see if they qualify to be king. Feeling excluded in that, he probably looked at them being paraded in front of Samuel, and he felt excluded, not, not as if he fit the part. David, ignored by his dad. It's crazy, though, because Samuel had to ask Jesse, is there one more? What if he didn't ask? He's like, oh, the dad's like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's one more, but he, he's out tending sheep. He didn't even want to include him. David, ignored by his dad, scorned by his brother, and rejected by King Saul. We're going to get into that. He was overlooked by his father, but handpicked by God. Have you ever felt that? Overlooked by your father, handpicked by God. To his older brothers, he was probably a pest. To his father, he was tending sheep. But to God, he was the one destined to be king. Not just any king. He was from the bloodline from which Jesus would come. Not just a king. He would be the king of the king of kings. They missed it, Ms. Sheila. They missed it. From this lineage, this dysfunctional lineage would come the king of kings. 
after being anointed as king, did Samuel even take him into king's school or something? Like, did he have to learn something, how to talk? All the laws, what did, what did he have to do? Did he have to enroll in some kind of course? Did Samuel just take him? Mm-mm. David went back to the field and he continued to shepherd. There was a lot to be learned back then. His training was done in the shepherd field all that time alone. People thought he was counting sheep. David was talking to God. David's resume probably consisted of only being a shepherd boy. That's all he had on his resume, shepherd boy. But he recognized that the Lord was his shepherd, and that's all that he needed. The Lord was his shepherd. I may be a shepherd boy, but the Lord is my shepherd. When people look at you and how blessed you are, don't, don't just look at the person. Don't look at me. Look at who's in charge of me. David went back to shepherd sheep. I think of David after reading and studying him more. I think of Psalms 23. There's a sense of intimacy when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David, a future king whose character was defined in the fields of everyday life, prepared him for his calling. David, the future king, still had to deal with being the wounded son. Carl Jung speaks of different types of wounds that he had received from this and how they affect us as adults. There's four types of wounds. I'm not a therapist, but I do read a lot, and I've seen one before. But wounds can affect your relationship, even as adults. It affects your attachment styles, your self-esteem, your coping mechanism. Carl Jung says, oftentimes, I want you to get this. Oftentimes, we are drawn to people or situations that trigger our inner child wounds. Let me read that again. Oftentimes, we are drawn to people or situations that trigger our inner child wounds. You ever wonder why you keep dating the same guy over and over? Why you keep getting into the same mess over and over? We're attracted to them. This happens because we unconsciously, I don't want to miss any words, that's why I have to read it, try to master past experiences that hurt us. Wonder why you, all of that happens? It says, we unconsciously try to master them by past experiences that hurt us. It makes sense now. While everything's coming, the four types of wounds is, number one, it talks about the guilt wound. The guilt wound is you're afraid to set boundaries. Avoid asking for help. You neglect yourself and you're a people pleaser. Mm-hmm. Guilt wound. Number two, abandonment. You feel left out and don't like being alone. You attach yourself to emotionally avoidant people. Wow. Wound number three. You might find yourself in here. I found myself. I was like, ooh. Number three, neglect. You struggle to let things go. You repress emotions. Short outbursts of anger. Has trouble expressing or accepting feelings. Mm -hmm. Number four, the trust wound. 
afraid to get hurt, deep down, you're super insecure because you don't even trust yourself. I read through all these wounds and my dad is three of four. Three of four. There was too much shame attached to all of his wounds. He probably buried it so deep he wanted to take it to his grave. Didn't want nobody to know about it. I've talked to even his siblings. They couldn't even piece the puzzle of all the questions I kept asking. They couldn't because they too weren't part of his upbringing. He pretty much raised himself. The wounded son having to deal with all that pain by himself. But when he talked about the woman who raised him, his eyes would light up who I was named after. I was wondering every time I go back to the islands, his family, they would throw a barbecue. They would just have this party, have these things for me to take back. I'm like, what? Every time I show up because I was named after this woman that I have no idea who she was. No idea. He didn't want to open up that box because then it would lead to, well, where was your mom? Right? He didn't want to open that up. <sighs> Returning back to Samoa multiple times when my mom was married to him, every time he came back, he was triggered. Something about going back to his family triggered him, and he'd return back to us just in an outrage, just mad all the time outbursts all the time. I think of David and wondered about his wound and rejection, which led to a lot of dysfunction in his own family. Now, before I go any further, I want you to understand that David's mess serve a purpose. I don't want this message to be so heavy where it's just all negative, but written in the Bible for all to see is David's imperfection as a failed father, as a failed husband. He goes on, but all of this is purpose because no matter what happened, he ran to God and God forgave him. He ran to God. That's what I don't want you to miss. In his imperfection of being a failed father and a failed husband, he ran to God. And God forgave him. God restored him. God doesn't throw anyone away. He doesn't even throw your mess away. Rather, he redeems you. Why? Because in all the chaos, all the mess, God still sees that David had the ability to be great. Above all your chaos, David still, God still sees that you have the ability to be great. Three points on how this wounded son became great. Point number one, greatness comes from making peace with your past because the greatest threat to your future is an unhealed past. The greatest threat to your future is an unhealed past. Greatness comes from making peace with your past. The greatest threat isn't your spouse, it isn't your children, it isn't your boss, it's an unhealed past. Even if, if you think back, even if the prophet Samuel called David up from the group, later, the damage was still done. David still had to live with that past being wounded. This even could, this caused perhaps a lot of disconnect with him and his children. I'll go on. I don't want to go ahead of myself. Could this experience even cause him to have a disconnect with him and his spouse? Wounded? He didn't know how to communicate. There's a lot of instances in the Bible that tells us when David became a father, he had many years of sitting in silence in the palace by himself, just crying. Because he just couldn't communicate. 
He couldn't communicate, but he didn't have a, t- a problem communicating to God. He had no memory of anyone ever communicating or even piecing the puzzle of his story to help him heal through all of that. So it was hard for David as a father, as a king, to even communicate to his children. He was wonderful in the battlefield. I mean, he could go to the battlefield and explain second to second what happened and how he won. But ask him this question, how's the children? He'll probably say, oh, they're good. Could his children say the same thing? So I'm going to ask you as a father, how's the children? And can they say the same thing? The Bible tells us when David became a father, he had many years of just trying to find comfort through his pain. Oftentimes, the care or mentorship of an older brother would help you, right? But even his brothers rejected him. Oftentimes, it would be like another mentor. Even King Saul rejected him. David shows up to the battlefront with food for his brothers. He was scolded. The Bible says, why'd you come down here? Who is tending the sheep? You're such a cocky brat. You just want to see the battle. These are the words of his brother. I don't know about you, but if a nine-foot giant was coming to kill me, I would grab my brother and put him under my wing. Right? No, they were scolding him. Go back. What are you doing here? David takes on Goliath. Makes King Saul look bad. The women come out dancing. Slain has, Saul has slain a thousand. David, 10,000. His father didn't believe in him. His brother didn't believe in him. King Saul didn't believe in him. King Saul didn't even try to kill him. Those are types of rejections that can wound and affect us as adults. David didn't have a relationship with his children. Perhaps he struggled as a father. Not because he experienced pain or rejection, but get this. He didn't know how to deal with his pain. He just kind of brushed it under the rug. Yeah, 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 it's there. Just come out at, at another time. When we refuse to acknowledge the wounds of our heart, we turn to methods that help us cope. We self-medicate. We drink. We smoke. We shop. We spend. We eat. We gain weight. We lose weight. We have sex or even become addicted to exercise. You ever know that person that's addicted to every? workout regimen, every diet that comes out, I want to, that's me. If there's a new diet, I'm going to study it. I'm going to make sure that it's proven to be true in me. And if it doesn't, I'm on to the next diet. If there's a new exercise in town, guess who studies it? Me. I'm going to find it out, study it. I'm going to do it. See if it's right. If there is pain, underlying pain, we come addicted to something, something. My father was addicted to working a lot. My father was infamous on always making money, being the best provider in the family. There were times where he would have two to three jobs on top of being a military person, not because we needed to, but because he he always wanted to be sure that we had more than enough, which nothing's wrong with that, right? His perception of being present was providing. As long as he can pay, pay for it, yeah, guess what? I, I'm present. And this in no way is trying to make my father look bad. I am just trying to understand him as a father. He worked a lot. Great. We were never left in a space where we did not have enough. We had more than enough. 
But there are also times where I knew in my childhood where I remember when we had um, our car repossessed. Family of six kids. And he and my mom just cried in the living room because he felt as if he felt as a provider. There was also a time in which I was 14, maybe I was 12, and our house was taken from us. I mean, they had to have the cops come and escort us off the property. And I could remember my father taking us to a motel and just crying because he felt as if he failed of providing for us. I could, I can think of many times in which he would just sit outside talking to himself, wanting to get rid of that generational cycle in his family of not being present for his wife, for his children, but he always kept us together. There was always a plan that he had for us because he depended on no one but God. I still remember moments where my mother would just cover him because he couldn't even share his pain with her. He couldn't. I've had many discussions with her this week and I'm like, mom, how did you not know? She's like, he never said anything. He was just always angry, kept it to himself. He didn't want us to know that part of his family, his story. My father, when I look back, he was finally in a position where he could buy what we wanted and what we needed, and we moved to Samoa. <clears throat> we lived there, and I went to high school there and college, and I can remember wanting these pair of shoes. And so my mom trusted him. She was always scared to make him go shopping with us because my dad never had like a limit, and we knew it, and we took advantage of him. So I'm like, yes, dad's gonna take me shopping, mom's not coming. So we go to the store, and as a 10th grader in 1986, I wanted these Nike shoes that were $125. Back then, that's like $300 now, right? 1986, these Nikes were high tops, green and yellow and white, and I just had to have them. My dad went around the store, and I pointed them out, and he just took it, purchased it, we went home. Now, the problem was he had to tell my mom how much it was. And I was like, ooh, I'm out. So I'm like... <laughs> Look at my shoes, mom. And then I walked out and I could hear my mom just, they just went at it. But it made my dad so proud that he could afford those shoes for me. That made me so happy. Just imagine the pressure that fathers have, feeling as if what they provide is not enough. We put too much pressure on them. Sometimes they can't sleep. We want them to perform as being the great spouse or great father to all of our kids, but inside their head, they have a lot going on for them. Release yourself. Release yourself of that. Growing up, we couldn't afford much. <clears throat> I have to share these things. We, were, we never 
went. We didn't have the annual shopping. You know how some of y'all went to buy new clothes or you take your kids every year to go buy new clothes for your kids because school starts? Yeah, we didn't. My mom had patches. If there was a hole in your jeans, she'd patch it up. If your pocket was missing, guess what? You had a different material for that pocket. We didn't buy new shoes for ourselves until there was a hole. If the soles were still in place, guess what? You still, you still gonna wear it the next day. Yes. Cardboard. We didn't have backpacks either. We had to carry our books. So consider yourself blessed. I'm not sharing all these stories to make you feel sorry for me, but when I put on a nice pair of shoes or I carry a nice bag, best believe I praise the Lord that I am in the space I am in right now. Praise the Lord. David weeps. It's crazy, though. I look through all the stories that he has. When you think of the word David, what comes to mind? The first story. Come on, quick. Bathsheba. I read through that story again, and it took me to the story of Bathsheba, and it said, what puzzled me was the Bible said, David took her. Huh? Huh? <laughs> David took her. The Bible said, David took her. She came to him. He lay with her. She cleansed herself and went back home. It showed nothing about consensual to me. This time I read it. Then I read on the generational cycle that continued in his son, David's son, Amnon, who pretended to be in love with his sister, Tamar. The Bible says he pretends to be sick and he asks if Tamar, his sister, can care for him. Amnon rapes his sister and then he throws her out. These are David's kids. 2 Samuel 13 speaks on how David found out about his daughter being raped by his son. The Bible says David was angry. I continue reading. I'm like, what else did he do? Right, right? What else did he do? Hmm, David was angry. Anything else? Let me turn the page. David was angry. That is all. David says nothing. His son rapes his daughter. David says nothing. Doesn't call a family meeting, doesn't go over there to Amnon to beat him up, doesn't pull Tamar closer to love on her. In fact, the Bible says Tamar lived as a desolate woman with her brother. David didn't know how to connect with his children. David weeps. David is angry, but he makes no presence made to make this thing right. There's no banishment rule. There's no punishment. There's nothing done to make this thing right. What's worse is that he did nothing to Tamar. I don't know about you, but she needed her dad. She needed her dad. She needed his validation. She needed his affirmation. What she got was silence. I'm sure Tamar thought, oh, David's going to come. My daddy's going to come. He's going to show up. He's going to beat you up. You're going to be banished from the kingdom. David does nothing. He didn't know how to father. Disconnected. The wound of neglect. Surely we can say, David, what were you thinking? David was still trying to deal with his inner wounded child himself. Fathers, I just want to let you know, you are more important than you know. 
what you say, how you deal with things in your family, you are more important than you know. It is only through the father that a daughter knows how a man should take care of her. If we don't get it at home, guess what? We're going to look for that love and affection from a man or a woman. Don't get it twisted. We will look for a man or a woman that would provide that love for us. I'm pretty sure David had a lot of regrets in his life. The Bible tells us he wept in solitude. There may have been chaos in the home, but David knew how, who to go to. It's crazy, though, because when we think of ourselves and we think of David's story, it's easy for us to look outside and judge David, but David knew how to talk to his father. It's crazy. He knew who was in charge of his life. He didn't say, this is how I am. He didn't make excuses for everything he did. He just went straight to the father. Oftentimes when we go through stuff, we tend to blame, well, this is part of my culture. This is how I am. This is where I was raised. This is the community I was brought in. When my parents raised Raise me this way. My brothers and sisters are like this. This is how you have to accept me. No, David just communicated to the Father, and whatever God said, he believed it. He never looked at himself as being perfect. The reality is, if you lack honesty with God regarding your past, he won't reveal the details of your future. Will not. If you aren't honest with them, guess what? He's not going to tell you what your future is. If his future, if he tells you that your future is to be prosperous, guess what? You're probably stuck because we haven't been truthful about our past. There was a time in which I just wanted to go, 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 go. But God was like, no, I just want to talk about stuff you have with your mom. You need to make things right with your mom. There's just some things that you just have to make right. And I'm like, well, I thought I already solved that issue. There was a point in my life where my, my daddy passed away and my mom remarried within the year and I just didn't want to talk about her. I didn't want to talk to her. I didn't want to talk about her. I didn't want her name mentioned. Well, this lasted nine years. And I still haven't resolved that conflict of making things right with my mom. And as soon as I did, the floodgates began to open. God began to broaden the territory of where he purposed me to be. But in the meantime, since I didn't deal with that, I was stuck right here. Perhaps God is saying to you, I want you to prosper, but let's talk about that eight-year-old girl that you're still stuck in. Let's talk about what happened to you when you were 12 years old. And the more we tuck it under, the more we're just stuck. I love how David talks about Psalms 51. After taking Bathsheba and all of that happened, he says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He uses words like wash me, cleanse me, purge me, make me, restore me, create in me, teach me, clean me. David prays as prayerfully as he wept like when he went to the father he fully unclothed and opened himself to the father when was the last time we did that to the father or do we just say god forgive me i'm good david really knew how to repent 
David didn't say, I sinned against Bathsheba or Uriah or his wives or his concubine. David said, I sinned against God. He didn't point fingers. He didn't run from God, but he ran to God. And the important thing is, God forgave him. I don't care where we're at. Perhaps we're still running, running, running. The beautiful thing about God is when we run to him, he forgives us. He forgives us. That's the beauty of his holiness. I want you to realize that God will never give up on you, regardless of what you've done, where you've been. God has not changed his intention for your life. David wanted to change his story. He just didn't know how. David didn't want these generational cycles to repeat itself. He wanted to flip the script. We can too. My dad flipped the script. He was tired of people asking him, how are you? How are you? He really wanted to tell them the truth. But David, in this instance, when people say, how are your kids? He didn't know what to say because he knew what they really thought. Everything was in chaos. But David knew how to repent. He knew how to repent. And he was great at that. Greatness comes from owning your own mistakes. The first thing David did with his shortcomings was admit them. He was good at that. He was transparent and honest with God. He never gave up. God never gives up on you. He takes responsibility and he admits to God everything that he has done. David was a great repenter. He would tell God, I've sinned against you. He didn't run from God. He wanted God to really, really seek him and give him a clean heart. David wanted to change his story. And he did. We're going to the end. Greatness comes from making God your refuge. And David was good at that. David was good at making God his refuge. Not his spouse, not his wallet, not his reputation. Make God your refuge, not your retirement account. Make him your refuge. In Psalms 57, David writes, Be merciful, God, to me. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge. Psalms 23 records David's dependence on God, how God, the Lord, is his shepherd. He should not want. David was sure that God was the foundation in which he stood. God was the wings in which he comforted himself in. He covered his heart in everything. I can only imagine as David went through all that, what the enemy kept telling him. Imagine him having to hear the voices of the people, the voices of God, and the voices inside of his head. David, you truth? You think you're a man after God's own heart? You really believe that? You're a loser. Worst leader of all time. Imagine David having to fight those things. I believe the devil hurled every possible attack of condemnation over David. Because the devil will take advantage of those failed marriages. He will take advantage of those failed moments and just work through it. I think the enemy's worst fear is that you will wake up one day and believe who God has called you to be. There are two types of thoughts that you have to fight for. The thought of God will help you and the thought of God has left you. Where are you at? The thought of God will help you or the thought that God has left you. Don't be caught up in the death of your situation. Your grave serves a purpose. 
this morning as I was trying to come to the end of the sermon, I just began thinking and thinking. And sometimes I overthink because David may have struggled in the home, but David knew how to inquire of the Lord. It didn't take much effort because he automatically went to that. Before he stepped out, he would look up. Before he stepped out, he would look up. Before he stepped out, he would look up. Lord, tell me what to do. I looked through the Bible and David made it a habit to run his options past God. Before he decided anything, he ran everything by God. He would say things like, should I, should I go up? And God said, yes. Will the men capture me? And God would say, yes, they will. Should I pursue them? The Bible says, God said, yes, you should. Will I overtake them? God said, yes, you will. Imagine having that kind of relationship with a God who answers you directly. But see, David knew God. David wasn't one that just came and asked God. You know those kind of people that call you and they only call you when they want something? Oh no, that wasn't David. David spent time with him and then he asked God. And God answered him. Oh, that God would do the same for us. He will, he can. We just have to ask. Most of the time, we want a free ride to the kingdom. I used to speak of this message called a hitchhiker concept. You know what hitchhikers do? They stand at the end of the road and they just give me a free ride. Don't ask me for gas. I want to use your air condition. By the way, do you have a bottle of water? But don't ask me for nothing. I just want a free ride to the kingdom. Don't ask me to do anything. Stand up, come here early, help out, nothing. But please provide a fresh word every Sabbath, Pastor Rico. Please make sure there's a hydration station ready for me when church is done. David had a relationship. He had the guts to ask God for anything he wanted because he was present with God daily. Let no doubt that God's plan for you is to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God has called you to do what no one else can do because God's plans are always good for you. King David is an example to all of us. Just like David, he became a wounded son destined for greatness. In John's gospel, Jesus made seven declarations of himself. Now, I know we used to do declarations, and David did a lot of that for himself. There were seven declarations that God made, the gospel Jesus. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do we have declarations over our life? Do we even as fathers have declaration over our home, over our spouses, over our children? What do you speak life into? We, as a church family, as a family unit, need to begin declaring life over our family. I think of Sabrina, I keep looking at her. Because if you knew her story, you'd know why she does children's ministry with such passion. Did you guys go in there? It's amazing. And 
if you don't know her story, and I'm not going to tell it because y'all miss all night prayer meeting. And she told it all. Now when I see her, her passion, her love for children is because of her story. You see, Pastor Rico right here, he don't just love the, the, the marginalized just because. He don't serve the community just because. Have you heard snippets of his story? Everyone has a story. And out of that pain, God births a purpose. Through every pain, God births a purpose. The story of my father is that he became great as a wounded son. My daddy was a rejected child, rejected from some of his family. He wanted better for his family. He left the islands, joined the military. He went to school and even pursued a degree at Columbia College. First generation graduate of all his siblings. Retired from the military. He became a homeowner. And when we retired here and moved back to Samoa, there was so much pain that he still had to deal with. So he went back into the world and was caught up in self-medicating himself. He drank a lot. That's all I knew as we would go to church. He would drink himself. My mom would have to go and pick him up and bring him back home. We were all grown watching this. So this looked different to me. I've never seen this part of my father, but he just didn't know how to act in front of the people who rejected him. We were in his community, in his village, and he didn't know how to deal with that pain. He's seen these people every day. He even took in his mother, the woman who left him, and took care of her. And when he wanted to express feelings to her, he would go get drunk and come home and express those feelings. He just didn't know how to have conversations. When he joined the military, he would send his full check to her. The woman who rejected him because he just wanted to be accepted. He even built a house for his family and he still felt rejected. He became great in our eyes. He began leading in ministries in church and he married my mom and my mom was at Venice and he began, I mean, he was pathfinder leader, youth leader, every leader possible in the church. That's where he found the Lord. He began working so effortlessly. They were both teamed up as leaders. And then when I think of my dad in the last years of when my mother would pray for him to come back, to the Lord. I mean, he was always in the house. Seven in the morning, he would go. Come back home. He was probably at his family's house drunk. But when my mom pleaded for the Lord to bring him back home, he had a stroke. He couldn't go nowhere. He was bedridden. That kept him at home a lot. And my mom had to care for him. She was 46 years old having to care for her husband who was immobile, changing him, his diaper, taking him everywhere in a wheelchair. He couldn't talk. But she said, Paula, God answered my prayer. 
because she nursed him back to the kingdom. She nursed him back to the Lord. And I've never seen such a better picture of my parents when my dad took his last breath because in the last years, he was bedridden. He craved my mom's hands just to hold her, just to love on her. He couldn't talk, but he would serenade her. He would try anything possible to just be intimate with my mom. She would sing to him. They read the Bible together. The wounded son who came became great. Having talks with my mom, I was like, Mom, what were your last words to dad? What, what, what were they? And she said, honey, we're going to be okay. He was still worried that his family still needed him to provide for us. As soon as she said, we're going to be okay, he took his last breath. And she said, I'll see you in the kingdom. My father, David, wounded, rejection, trauma, all of that mess, dysfunction, still became great. They even chose not to carry on those generational cycles that was with their families before to have them no longer exist within them. The more I think about my father, the more happy I wish I can go back and just say, man, I don't think I as a child said just how proud I am of you, us as kids. We don't understand just how much our parents had to go through to stop what their parents did to them. You're probably a better outcome of what they were given. These are moments where it's okay to have those talks with your parents to learn more of your history because then as we become parents, I, I told myself too, I didn't want that to be part of my own family because there are times where I have to keep myself from saying certain things, certain words to my children. I still remember the time when my dad said to me, I'm done with you. I'm gonna take you to the, to the, what did he call it? The, the home, take you to a home because you don't listen no more. And that hurt me. But that came from him being constantly rejected. Now that I understand all of those behaviors, man, I wish I had moments where I could just pray with my dad. Taking advantage of all of that. I, I think of him now and I have so much. I think what makes me a better leader is carrying on his legacy as a leader and my mom. My mom too, her father was a very, he, my grandfather on my mom's side was just a scholar. He knew the Bible, memorized everything. And how he won people to the Lord was that he was a masseuse. So when people would come in and see pictures of Jesus, they would inquire of the Lord and he would win them over to Christ. So it's wonderful to see that I have the combination of both of that in me. Like inside of you, no matter what your past looks like, greatness still exists in you. God can still do great things in you and through you.